Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. My name is Bob O'Bannon, one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. Uh, Even though so much of our world seems to be so different right now, there are at least one thing that's going to remain the same, and that is that we are going to fix our eyes on Jesus and concentrate our attention on His Word. That is something that's not going to change, and so that's why we are just continuing down Route 66, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So, you can open your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Movie lovers will agree and acknowledge that one thing we find in some of the greatest movies is um, kind of a notorious bad guy, a villain. You got Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, Darth Vader in Star Wars, the Joker in The Dark Knight. James Bond movies have a number of different villains and notorious bad guys. All of these characters are embodiments of evil. They're scary. They're frightening. They're people we don't want to meet in a dark alley or any time, actually. And we take some comfort, I suppose, in realizing that we're never going to meet them because they're not real. They are fictional characters. Well, in the Scriptures there is a depiction of a notorious villain. And I'm not referring to Satan here. I'm referring to someone who is called the man of lawlessness, also known as the Antichrist. And the thing we have to realize about this particular person is that he's not fictional. This is a real person who will come on the scene one time in the future and gratefully, the Scriptures are warning us about him here in this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So, Route 66, what we've been doing here at New Life over the last year and several months is moving our way through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book, starting in Genesis, moving our way toward Revelation. And we are in the letters of Paul here now, and we have reached today the book of 2 Thessalonians. So, this book is written, was written by the Apostle Paul, a very early book, probably around 52 AD, written probably about six months after 1 Thessalonians, which we covered last week. And both these letters are written to a city called Thessalonica, which is in modern day Greece today. And uh, the theme of both, both 1 and 2 Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. And this seems to be a very providential and appropriate topic for us to consider, given the circumstances in which we find ourselves now. As I mentioned last week, as the world seems to be kind of shutting down around us, it reminds many of us of the end of the world. And to many it feels like the world is coming to an end. And the Scriptures do tell us a lot about the end of the world. Last week in 1 Thessalonians we learned about the rapture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And today we'll be learning about this man of lawlessness. Um, So, both these letters are written in response to questions that were asked. So, in 1 Thessalonians Paul received a question from the church um, about those who have already passed away, those who are already dead, um, Christians who have passed away. Will they miss out when Jesus comes again on the final day? 
And so that is what Paul was addressing in 1 Thessalonians. The question to Paul for 2 Thessalonians is, what if Jesus has already come and all of us have missed it? The church was concerned about that. They thought maybe the second coming is in the past, we've missed it. And so Paul is seeking to answer that question in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so I'm going to read that passage right now. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. <clears throat> it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, again, we call on you by your spirit to give light to our eyes, to soften our heart, and to enable us to behold wonderful things in your word. Do that as this passage is preached now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Three things that we want to consider about this man of lawlessness. First of all, when will he come? And then what will he do? And then lastly, why you don't need to be afraid. So the first thing, when will, uh, when will this man of lawlessness come? Again, last week we looked at the teaching of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we learned that the rapture is going to occur on the very last day of history. When Jesus comes again on that final day to bring history to a close. And that seems to be what Paul is talking about here in this first verse in chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together. I think that's a reference to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The rapture. And then Paul moves to consider this question that he has received about the day of the Lord. You see that in verse 2. He says to the Thessalonians, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or spoken word or letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, that's a reference to the second coming of Christ, has already come. 
Now, how the Thessalonians got this idea that Jesus had already come, we don't really know, but there is reference here in verse 2 to uh, spirit, spoken word, letter. It seems that some people in the church thought the spirit was giving them a message, or they heard some kind of a revelation, or they um, received some kind of a non-apostolic letter that is not now included in our Bibles, but maybe was circulating then. And from that information, they were concluding that Jesus has already come. But Paul says, don't be deceived by these things, because Jesus has not already come. And the reason why is because there are two things that need to happen before the man of, uh, before uh, Jesus comes. Two things that need to happen before Jesus return. The first thing he mentions is this thing called the rebellion. You see that in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day... The coming of the Lord Jesus will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So what is this rebellion? Well, the Greek word here for rebellion is apostasia. It's the word from which we get the English word apostasy. And apostasy is defined as a falling away from the faith by those who once held to it. Apostasy is when someone claims Jesus as Savior, professes faith in Jesus, and then reverses that conviction and says, I'm not a Christian anymore. And we saw this fairly recently with a guy named Joshua Harris, very famous Christian pastor, writer, who has renounced his faith and declared that he is no longer a Christian. That is a sign of apostasy. Now, maybe Joshua Harris will come back to the faith. We pray and hope that he does. But it appears, anyway, at this moment, to be a kind of an apostasy. What Paul is saying here is that uh, in the future, before Jesus comes, there is going to be this rebellion. There's going to be this widespread apostasy. And since apostasy is departing from a faith once held, this is something that's occurring within the church. This rebellion is not necessarily a referring to an outbreak of evil in the world, this is something that's happening in the church. Before Jesus will come again, there's going to be this massive turning away from Christ. That's one thing that will have to happen before Jesus comes again. But there's a second thing that will also have to happen, and you see this also in verse 3. Unless the rebellion comes first and this additional event the man of lawlessness is revealed. So we don't really know the order of these two things. Which comes first? We don't know. They probably will coincide and happen at largely the same time. But this man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. Man of lawlessness, Antichrist, same person. An Antichrist is anybody who sets himself up as a rival to Jesus. Anybody who opposes outwardly Jesus Christ. That's an antichrist. Um, you might be surprised to know that the only place in the Bible where the word antichrist is used is actually in the book of 1 John. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. But John does tell us a couple of things about antichrist in two passages. One is in 1 John 4.3 where John tells us that actually antichrists are already in the world. Every spirit, he says, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So here's John writing 2,000 years ago. And even back then, he says, there were Antichrists in the world. But not only 
have Antichrist being in the world for a long time, but in 1 John 2.18, John tells us this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you two have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So here we have this emphasis on Antichrists in the plural. Many Antichrists in the world. And John was already saying that in the first century. So throughout history there have been many Antichrists over the years. And we can think of some fairly obvious examples. Emperor Nero would have been one uh, who persecuted viciously the early church. Muhammad would be one also, one who denied Jesus' claim to divinity. Uh, Adolf Hitler certainly would be an antichrist. Uh, Johnny Rotten, lead singer of the Sex Pistols, he once sang in one of his songs, I Am the Antichrist, he said very explicitly. Richard Dawkins, others uh, among the new atheist movement who are so vehemently denying Christ. Anybody who comes forward and denies that Jesus is the Son of God who has come in the flesh to die on the cross to forgive us for our sins. Anybody who denies that is an antichrist. So there have been many antichrists in the world. But what Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is somebody different. All of the antichrists that have come before in history would be, we might say, lowercase a antichrists. What Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is a capital A Antichrist. The one uh, for whom all the others before are merely a dress rehearsal for this last Antichrist who will come on the scene. And we have this reference in verses 6 and 7 to another detail that will need to happen before the Antichrist comes which will happen before Jesus comes. And there's this kind of mysterious reference in verses 6 and 7 to the restrainer. The restrainer. And so, you know, commentators differ on what this restrainer is. Um, but we learn here that this restrainer must be removed to allow the Antichrist to come on the scene. And one of the things that's so confusing about the way Paul words this is in verse 6 he talks about what is restraining him, that is the man of lawlessness. So that would seem to suggest that the restrainer is a thing. What is restraining? But then you look into verse 7 and it says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it. So now the restrainer seems to be a person. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So again, commentators differ greatly on what is this restrainer. I think perhaps one way to make sense of the what and the who is to say perhaps the what is the gospel and the who is God. Proclaiming His gospel throughout the world. That's what's been happening ever since Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected in the church age for the last 20 centuries. The gospel has gone forth. And because of the power of that gospel... Um, the mystery of lawlessness has been restrained. But at some future time, the preaching of the gospel is going to be curtailed. And the grace of God revealed through the preaching of the gospel is going to be put aside. And this man of lawlessness will then come on the scene and wreak havoc on the world, which we'll consider here in just a moment. So, uh, a lot to consider there. Summary is just simply this. Before Jesus comes again, two things have to happen. A rebellion or an apostasy and an antichrist. 
coming on the scene. What Paul is saying here is that hasn't happened yet, and so Jesus hasn't come yet. And we say the same thing today. We haven't seen the rebellion yet, and we haven't seen the capital A Antichrist yet. And so we know Jesus' coming is still future. And by the way, we shouldn't bother spending time trying to figure out exactly when this Antichrist is going to come on the scene, or when Jesus is going to come back, because we don't know. And people have spent a lot of time speculating about who is the Antichrist. And if you read the history of this, you'll find some kind of embarrassing notions. Some people thought that Abraham Lincoln was the Antichrist. People thought Elvis Presley was the Antichrist. And so we look back and see how silly it is to try to figure that out ahead of time. The Scriptures warn us, don't try to figure out the day of Jesus coming. You don't know. We don't know. But we do know that these two events will occur before Jesus comes again. But one thing that we see here, I think that we can draw out of this as kind of a principle or application, is that it, it would seem to suggest that before Jesus comes again, things will have to get worse before they get better. And that just reminds me of this whole coronavirus situation, because that's what we're being told. The Surgeon General actually last week said that things will get worse regarding this virus before they get better. Now, it's yet to be seen whether that turns out to be true, and that might not be the news that we really want to hear, uh, but I think we would all agree that we want to hear the truth rather than an expression of wishful thinking. And that's what we get here in the Scriptures. The scriptures are giving us the truth, and that is that things will get worse with a rebellion and an Antichrist before things get best when Jesus returns again. As Christians, we don't want to be cynics. But we need to be realists. We need to look at the world through the lens of the Scriptures. And the Scriptures tell us that the world is fallen. And so when we see low attendance in churches and immorality growing and spreading throughout the world, even when we see viruses spreading throughout the world, it reminds us what the Scriptures tell us. We live in a fallen world. It's a hard world. It's a sad world. It's a tragic world. It's a beautiful world because God created it that way, but it's also fallen. And so we're grieved at these things as Christians, but we're not surprised. We're realists. We're not cynics, but we're realists. And so Peter even warns us about this. Don't be surprised, he says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, whether it be the man of lawlessness or a coronavirus, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That is, when He comes again on the last day. So, when will Jesus come? After the rebellion and the man of lawlessness comes on the scene. So, let's consider this secondly. What will He do? That is, what will this man of lawlessness do? Um, Paul does tell us about that in this passage, and he tells us at least three things that this Antichrist or man of lawlessness will do. And the first thing is this, he's going to proclaim something. Very specifically, he's going to proclaim to be God. Look at this in verse 4. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this man of lawlessness is going to oppose not just Christianity, apparently, but all gods and all religions. 
and um, proclaim himself to be God and demand that people submit to him, worship him, and obey him. Um, Adolf Hitler would be another example of this kind of thing happening. Hitler demanded obedience from people in the nation of Germany. It was the goal that Hitler would occupy the same place in the hearts and minds of the Germans as Jesus Christ once had. Hitler wanted to change Christian churches into Nazi churches. He was known to take crosses off of churches and replace them with swastikas. All of these are examples of what Paul is talking about here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But again, we know that Hitler is still a little a antichrist. We're still waiting for the final antichrist. But nonetheless, we get a picture of this in history. And then in verse 4, we have another um, kind of odd phrase here, one that has engendered some degree of debate. It's in verse 4 where it says that this Antichrist is going to take his seat in the temple of God. So what does that mean, the temple of God? Much disagreement among commentators, depending on the particular theological view that you might be bringing to this. Some say that the temple is referring to the Jewish temple that was destroyed in AD 70. Some say it refers to a rebuilt temple in the future sometime in the city of Jerusalem. Um, one thing we have to be aware of is that in the New Testament the temple is often referred to in symbolic terms, not always interpreted literally. For instance, Jesus calls himself the temple, his own body. Uh, the scriptures in the New Testament also say that the bodies of believers are considered temples. And in some other places, the church of Jesus Christ is called a temple. So, for instance, here in 1 Corinthians 3, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, do you not know that you Christians are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Similarly, in Ephesians, Paul says this about the household of God. That's a reference to the church. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so I certainly think it's reasonable to consider that what Paul is saying here is that this Antichrist who calls himself God is going to take his seat in the church. So again, what we have is something not outside of the church in the world, but we have an event being described here from within the church, an Antichrist rising up, a somewhat religious figure, uh, assuming a role of authority in the church. So that's the first thing about the Antichrist. He's going to proclaim something. He's going to proclaim his own divinity from within the church. But secondly, this man of lawlessness is going to perform some things as well. And we see this in verse 9. According to verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So this man of lawlessness is going to perform, what we might say, counterfeit miracles. They're not going to be miracles by the power of God, but by the activity of Satan. You might recall um, Exodus chapter 7 and 8, where Moses and Aaron bring the plagues upon Egypt, and then Pharaoh's magicians come out, and they do the same thing. They reproduce the miracles that God's people had performed. 
And that seems to be kind of a foreshadowing of what Paul is talking about here. Uh, this man of lawlessness is going to have unusual supernatural powers to perform some signs and wonders. In Revelation 13 we have a description of the beast and it says there about the beast that he is going to perform great signs and will even um, enjoy healing from a mortal wound. And so this man of lawlessness is going to get a lot of attention from the world because of these signs, wonders, miracles that he is able to perform. And it's all for the purpose of the third thing that this man of lawlessness will do, and that is that he's going to persuade, and by that I mean persuade people to believe what is false. Look in verse 10, right after this mention of these counterfeit miracles, it says, and with all wicked deception, this man of lawlessness Earning credibility by these counterfeit miracles is then going to deceive people. But who is it that he's going to deceive? It says those who are perishing. So it's unbelievers, those who have rejected the gospel, who are going to be deceived. I think what Paul is implying here is that Christians, true real Christians, are not going to be deceived by this wicked deception because Christians know better. Christians know that anybody who comes on the scene in the church denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Word of God in the flesh, and claiming Himself to be God is a false teacher and someone who should be rejected. But will likely be able to discern something of the difference between true Christians and false Christians by who follows the Antichrist. Those who are perishing are going to be duped. And so we see here that one of the ways we identify the Antichrist is not necessarily by the way he looks. So often in the movies when a bad guy or a villain comes on the scene you can just kind of tell right away he's the bad guy by the way he looks or the way he dresses. You know the Antichrist I don't think is going to look like Darth Vader. He's not going to be that easily identified. The way he's going to be identified is by his theology, by his teaching. By what he claims about himself and what he claims about Jesus. He's going to be a false teacher. So a guy named Martin Downs says this, if we ever begin to doubt that false teaching is harmful to the church, or if we begin to become complacent about false doctrine, thinking that it is fascinating to ponder or stimulating to our thoughts, then we should remind ourselves that the New Testament specifies that the ultimate source of false teaching is Satan and his demons. And so you see that in verse 9. This is all happening by the activity of Satan. So Paul finishes this out by saying this. He just summarizes this way. He, he says, the gospel goes forth into the world. And that's what's happening now through missionaries and churches. The proclamation of Jesus Christ as a crucified, risen Savior goes forth. And yet, according to verse 10, there are people who refuse to love that truth. They reject it. They won't accept it. They will not be saved because they reject the gospel. And God's response to that, according to verse 11, is that He's going to send upon them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So these are people who have already rejected the gospel. And what Paul is saying is that God's going to send a delusion on them in such a way that He makes them even more gullible than they already are. He's going to make them in such a way that they will be Deceived and tricked by the counterfeit miracles and the false teaching of the man of lawlessness. This is a, a great warning to any of you out there who 
uh, might be in a position where you have rejected the gospel and refused to love it. Because the warning here is that God may send a delusion upon you so that you may not be able to discern the difference between what is true and what is false. And so that's why the time to believe, repent, and trust Jesus is now. And to not presume that you'll be able to receive Him just whenever you want in the future. There's a condemnation that is being pronounced here upon those who reject the gospel. And that's how Paul finishes this in verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. If a person is condemned, it's their own fault because they've rejected the truth that they've heard. So, this is what the Antichrist will do. He will proclaim, he will perform, he will persuade. Now, I've mentioned that this Antichrist is someone who's coming in the future. And so, some of us might be thinking, well, if it's coming in the future, I don't have to worry about this now. But, notice in verse 7, Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This lawless attitude, this, this spirit of lawlessness is already in the world. The man of lawlessness isn't here yet, but the spirit of lawlessness is. And so that's why all of us need to develop a wartime mentality. This is something we're also hearing about this coronavirus. We need to develop a wartime mentality. We need to be diligent in all of our behaviors, washing our hands, maintaining social distance, avoiding crowds, staying hunkered down. We're being encouraged. We're being encouraged to do that with great seriousness and great diligence because we're to develop a wartime mentality. And I would suggest to you that spiritually speaking, it's the exact same thing. We should develop a wartime mentality spiritually as well. We are in a spiritual battle. We are waging war against spiritual forces. And so, yes, wash your hands, avoid crowds, practice social distancing, and spiritually speaking, get on your knees and pray. Read your Bible. Be a student of the Word. Remain connected to your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are engaged in a spiritual battle, as Paul tells us clearly here in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against fresh flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Develop a wartime mentality. Last thing, why you need not be afraid of this Antichrist? The simple answer is this, because Jesus is going to destroy him. Jesus is coming one day and he is going to kill this man of lawlessness. This man of lawlessness, even though he's going to deceive the world, is no match for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 very clearly says, When the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You get this feeling that it's not going to be hard for Jesus to kill the man of lawlessness. It's not a sword that he uses, it's just the breath of his mouth. And that's something we sing about, and we're going to sing about here in just a few minutes in the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, by uh, words written by Martin Luther, verse 3. He says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him, 
His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, the hymn says, and that's a word from Jesus, shall fell him, shall destroy him, shall kill him. I wonder if Luther had this verse or this passage in mind when he wrote that great hymn. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ has come into this world in, in two stages. He came, first of all, 2,000 years ago. Uh, God taking on flesh, entering into this world, and He came at that time in peace, symbolized by His riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and we'll do so here in a few weeks. When Jesus first came, He came not to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved through Him. He came in peace. He came in love. He came to save he came to live and to shed His blood on the cross and to be resurrected from the dead so that any who would place faith in Him would be saved from their sins. The first time Jesus came in peace. But the second time, when Jesus comes again on the last day in the future, at an unknown time, after the rebellion and the man of lawlessness, when He comes then, He's not coming in peace. He's coming in judgment. He's coming to wage war. He's not going to be riding a donkey. He's going to be riding a white horse. And he's coming to destroy everything that is evil and wicked in this world, including Satan and his man of lawlessness. And I think we see this here in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast, also known as the Antichrist, and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a major component of the gospel that we believe. It is that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and can know that God loves us and we can be accepted by Him forever. That's a big part of the gospel, but another part of the gospel is what we've just read about, that we have a Savior who's coming again to defeat evil, to kill Satan, to destroy the man of lawlessness. You know, as I have been watching this coronavirus coverage. One thing that I've been impressed with, um, I find very interesting, is the fact that this situation in which we find ourselves is one in which the world seems to be united in a common cause. That there's something kind of refreshing about this to see nations who would otherwise uh, be in great disagreement with each other and maybe even warring with, with each other. China, Iran, the United States, and yet we're all trying to come together to fight a common enemy. All throughout the world, people coming together to fight this enemy. It's a refreshing thing, and I think we have great confidence to believe that this enemy, the virus, is, is going to be defeated in good time, and we long for that day. But what this passage would tell us is that, friends, we have a much bigger enemy than a coronavirus out there. And he is the enemy of the whole world. He's the enemy of every nation. 
Our enemies are not people we disagree with. Our enemies are not people in other countries. Our enemies are not Muslims or atheists. Our enemy is Satan and his man of lawlessness. And this is something, someone, that by all of our scientific exploration and ingenuity we can never overcome. There's nothing that the people of the world can do to overcome Satan and his power except look to Jesus, the one who can. He is the one who again will come on that final day on a white horse, eyes blazing like fire, the one who is faithful and true, the one who's wearing a robe dipped in the blood that he shed on Calvary, the Word of God made flesh, the Lord of Lord, and the King of Kings. He is the one who can defeat this greatest enemy of humankind. And He is the one we look to and call on to come quickly. In the meantime, we engage a wartime mentality. In the meantime, we are not to fear. In the meantime, we tell others about this gospel, that there is hope for victory over the greatest enemy that has ever faced the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have promised victory for those who trust in you. We thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross, in your resurrection, and in the promise of your second coming. Oh, Lord, would you please protect us from the evil one. Help us to be faithful to you until the end. And open our mouths, Lord, to declare the good news of our risen Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.